Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hello, everybody. I am Lucia Matuonto, and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Hello, listeners. We are back again with another episode of the RV. Today, we are going to Battersville, Oklahoma, and chatting with Amy Northcoos. Amy is an author and speaker. Her newest book is called Prayed Upon, Breaking Free from Therapist Abuse. So, my dear Amy, welcome to the Relatable Voice. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your time. So, Amy, I have a lot of questions for you. But before we get to them, you mentioned you have three kids and four dogs. And now I learned that you also have a cat. <laughs> yes. You must be a superhero. <laughs> no, I'm crazy. I am crazy. I am crazy. I'm not a superhero. I, you know, I had three kids and I had a daughter who was obsessed with animals and, you know, she had to have a dog and then that dog needed to have a friend and then she needed to have a big dog that she could teach tricks. And then she had to have a tiny dog. And then she adopted this cat that she was supposed to be feeding the homeless and she rescued a cat and I tried to convince her the cat wasn't homeless, but she didn't buy it. So yes, here we are with lots of pet hair. <laughs> and uh, is there any other animal? Yes, Emily has a horse named Chip. I mean, I love him too. So I should say we have a horse named Chip. And years ago, Emily had a pet ferret, but he was a little stinky. So he didn't stay around long. And then <laughs> she also had um, three sugar gliders which when she went away to college, we had to have her rehome those, but those were cute little buggers, but they sleep all day and they're awake all night. Mm -hmm. So not the most convenient pet. So what I can see is that your daughter is a very good negotiator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, see, that is right. Your newest book is called Prayed Upon, Breaking Free from Therapist Abuse. Can you please tell us what this book is about? Yeah, um, I, I opened the book with um, kind of my background on how I kind of developed low self-esteem. And, and I, I phrase it in the form of these rules that I kind of developed for myself that I didn't know that I had, but just rules such as, you know, other people, especially people, especially people in authority have more worth than you do. Um, you know, your emotions are, are negative, you know, stomp them out. People don't want to deal with them. People don't want to be burdened, things like that. And 
I'd, I'd seen a therapist for about a year in my 20s, again in my 30s, and then fast forward to my early 40s. Um, I was, we were living here in Bartlesville, um, married, mother of three, and I still had a lot of depression and anxiety that I just never could get rid of and just felt like there's got to be something wrong with me that I cannot shake this depression and had a lot of anger um, and bitterness that I also was just trying so hard, praying that God would remove it. And it just felt like it never was going anywhere. Um, I also add that when my younger sister passed away in 2010, that threw me also into a darker place. And so back to being in Bartlesville, um, I started attending a celebrate recovery group, um, here in town. It's just for life's hurts, um, habits and hangups, I think they say. And I just started working there, hoping, you know, to work on my marriage and my parenting and, and maybe, um, get rid of the depression. And I started to tackle my anger towards God and really kind of started to turn a corner there. And my face started to come more alive for me. And I started to feel like I was gaining some healing there and the anger was lessening. And I was realizing that God was not as far away as I thought he had been and that he was really very present and, you know, loved me. And so I was in a hopeful place. And when this doctor was recommended to me, the pastor's wife recommended him. He was an elder at my church and I loved my pastor and, and really respected him. And then a lot of friends saw him and loved him. So started seeing this Christian therapist. He was also a psychiatrist. That doesn't matter, but he was a psychiatrist that, that did um, counseling as well. And he was a little weird, a little goofy, but I, I knew that and everybody kind of knew that. And it was just sort of how he was, but that was his cover. I realized I saw him for a year and a couple months. And I think I started seeing him like in April and it was around December when I noticed a huge red flag. And that was that he offered to rub my shoulders or my feet for Christmas present. And in my panic and in my, you know, feeling that I, for whatever reason, couldn't say no. Um, and also in my desire to make him feel comfortable for the uncomfortableness that I was feeling, because I felt those were my rules. You know, you don't make somebody else feel bad. Other people don't ask stupid questions. If something they say is making you feel uncomfortable, then there's something wrong with you and you need to address it on and on with these lies that I was believing. So in that place, I chose shoulder rub. And then the minute he started that, it was maybe panicked. And I said foot rub just to get him farther back. And, you know, that's kind of how it would, how it went from then on out, you know, he would do something like that. It would be horrifying and shocking, but I would kind of minimize it and think, well, he's kind of, maybe he's being silly or, or maybe he, rem he remembers that I loved foot rubs when I was a kid. Maybe I told him that, you know, so maybe it was like something I said, and then he was just trying to be nice. Yeah. So eventually that became commonplace and was no big deal. Um, he even continued to rub my feet in sessions and I thought it was great. After I wasn't panicked, I became comfortable. And then it was not a big deal. He was like a father figure to me, like a grandfather, really. So it wasn't, it didn't have that like 
creepy sexual vibe that, you know, if somebody was my age or something, it was just sort of goofy. Um, I think the next thing I noticed was, um, well, I'll just, I'll just skip to a couple of the bigger ones, but he offered to dance with me maybe like four months later, but I thought it was because I had mentioned imagining myself dancing with Jesus, like a father daughter dance, like that kind of a song. I even told him the song and it was something, it was something along the lines of father daughter relationship. So then when he mentioned it, I was panicked with fear, but I heard all voices in my head say, say something, make your, he's, you're making him feel uncomfortable. Just, just, it's not a big deal. Like he's doing it. You, it was your idea anyway. He's just doing it to be a therapeutic exercise, you know? And so I made myself do it, but fast forward, I didn't realize I was on track to be groomed since day one. I didn't get that at all towards the very end of the relationship when I was realizing I've got to get out of here. Um, I went to the, my close friend and told her something he had done to me that was clearly a sexual assault. And she suggested that maybe he was just trying to teach me to stick up for myself since I've been molested as a child. And in that moment, I felt like I'm all alone. No one else is going to help me. Um, she doesn't want to deal with it. Nobody's going to want to deal with it because of her, you know, she was the pastor's wife and he's an elder. And, you know, I just realized I'm going to have to get out of my own. So it took me a few more months. Um, and I did go to my pastor and his wife again and told them everything. And they were helpful in sitting with me for my last session so that I could break that tie. Cause I just couldn't break it on my own. I just, he had made me feel sorry for him. He made me feel indebted to him because he had stopped charging me for sessions or he'd give me longer sessions. He made me feel like he would die if I left and that he was very fragile and that, Oh, and so he really played on my empathy and, and my guilt. And so I've kind of wrapped that up in a very quickly, but that's kind of the gist of what happened. And then once, once I was able to not go one time and break that tie, then I was able to start processing it. And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, I think I was groomed. I didn't know adults could be groomed. How could I have let this happen? I'm such an idiot. Like who, who falls for this? Like, and you know, I was wrestling with all those questions. Like, even when I realized at the end, he was hurting me, why couldn't I leave? Why couldn't I leave sooner? I don't, I didn't get it. And in time, I, you know, obviously put it together that, that I was groomed and still felt horribly guilty and that no one would believe me and that everyone would judge me. And I didn't want to tell anyone on the planet. That was my plan. But I eventually, you know, told my husband everything because it was the right thing to do. And then I eventually reported to the medical board and the medical board allowed him to surrender his license. Um, and then he just pretended to move away and retire because he was retirement age anyway. Um, and then I, it still felt like that wasn't enough, you know, for, for what he put me through. And I eventually file a civil lawsuit and it probably took me, you know, from getting out in 2014 until now I've been healing and writing this book was one of the biggest um, pieces of my healing journey. And so it kind of covers my old rules in the beginning that kind of set me up for abusers. I had had many, this doctor was number seven of people that took advantage of me in my lifetime. And then as I heal, 
it's really cool because I develop a new set of rules based on who God says I am and who I, you know, and kind of, you know, replace them with, replace the lies with the new rules. So that's, that is the gist of the book. And I know that's a lot. Yeah, we always internalize the negative actions done to us as something we did wrong. It could be out of fear of disappointing the other or just shame of what's being done to us. But I believe that it's something ingrained in us from childhood. But when you're young, you know, you're a child and if you get abused in any way, your only explanation is that it's about you because if it's about your caregiver or your loved one or your friend or uncle or whoever it is or coach, then life is much too scary. You know, that, that just can't be that can't evil can't exist like that. So if it's something in us that's inherently broken, we can fix that. And then there's hope. And so I think that's why, you know, children or even older people, we cling to that because it's a much, because at least there's hope in that, you know, rather than admitting that there are evil sociopaths that dress up like church elders and pastors and wear cross necklaces and are on the prayer team. um, That's so horrifying and makes the world so scary that it's almost easier or more palatable to think, well, maybe I did something or maybe I caused it and then I won't do that again. And then this situation, you know, yeah, but yes, it is. It's not a good thing to do because it's very damaging to us, the victims, and it's not fair for us to do that. But I think that's kind of one of the psychological things behind it. Yeah. And being from a medical background myself, I cannot imagine the level of betrayal you must have felt when you were intending to seek help. Yes. And then, you know, just imagine you go see a psychiatrist or a therapist or a doctor, really, for that matter. They can say whatever they want to about you. They can write in their notes whatever they want to. And, you know, that's not something I ever thought about before, but it's going to be your word against a doctor's. And that's a scary place to be, especially if you're the one that has depression or they can say you're mentally ill, you know, how scary is that? And how unfair is that? And they're the doctor and the respected, educated. Yeah. So it is very unfair. It's very unfair. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And what are you hoping readers will gain from learning about your story? I want victims to understand that they're not alone and that it's not their fault and that this happens to, this doesn't happen to, you know, just certain types of broken, defective, you know, naive women. This happens to intelligent, successful, educated, functioning 
it happens to everyone across the board. There's not a label that you can put on us. And, you know, I had a very wise um, attorney say that if, if one of this doctor's patients weren't taken advantage of, it's because the doctor wasn't interested in taking advantage of them. In other words, if you are targeted, once they set your sights on you, you know, not to say you're doomed, but um, they're very skilled at what they do. It does not make you ignorant or gullible or, you know, all of those negative things we think about ourselves. Um, And I just want onlookers or, you know, people that haven't had this happen to them to to be able to read this book and see how sneaky and insidious the grooming process actually is and how manipulative it is, because then there can just be a little less judgment for victims and, and just a little bit, you know, kind of build a bridge between, between the two so that you can better be there for an, or for a victim. And you can, um, does that make sense? You can just open your eyes a little bit more so that you can be more compassionate towards the subject. Cause I know things that I don't relate to. I think, well, that wouldn't happen to me, you know? And, um, I'm here to say, yeah, it could now I'm, you know, I'm saying there's a lot of things I realize now could happen to me. And, um, and then I also want people to understand that God can, um, this can happen and God can still be a good God and be present and loving. And Amy, unfortunately, we tend to wrongfully place the responsibility on the victim, as you were saying. Yes. And for example, people would say, why didn't you leave? What are some warning signs you could recognize but I think we should focus more on how to stop the cycle of abuse from happening on the side of the abuser yes and instead like I want to know what do you think needs to be done in order to stop the cycle of abuse from starting in the first place yeah that's a really good question um I've had several ideas when you're asking that question one of them was that, you know, people are so, they, they see red flags, they see warning signs and they're too afraid to go forward with them. Cause I think, well, that's kind of an awful thing to say or think considering this person is a church leader or considering this person is a doctor of all things. But, you know, the problem is, is that each person then sits on those thoughts and feelings and, you know, but if, if they would each come forward, it's, there's no harm in that and coming forward with your concern or your fear or the red flag, because, you know, then if there's enough of them, then maybe it points the leaders in a direction that they might need to look into it. And that is a much better plan than sweeping it under the rug and letting people suffer, or, you know, in some cases commit suicide because it was too uncomfortable to look into, or it was too awkward to, you know, look into. Um, I know that didn't address your question. That's just one piece of it. Because after I got out, I had several people come to me and say, you know, I went, I went to the church leaders with concerns about this person. And, you know, these things weren't listened to. And other, I know of other, another victim who he was inappropriate with, and, you know, she committed suicide years ago, but these things were, were blown off and, you know, it's just not okay. Um, and as far as, you know, stopping the abusers, when a victim comes forward with, 
you know, any kind of concern or like I started going to my um, friend who was the pastor's wife with smaller red flags, you know, if we aren't believed or listened to, you know, we tend to shut down and, and then just decide to go it alone, which is the worst thing we can do. And I realize now, and I, I say this over and over that victims need to keep telling because, and not let it crush them the first time they tell and they're not believed or heard um, because someone will listen. And so they need to keep after it until they're heard because, you know, and the people say in the church or in the communities, wherever this abuse is happening, people need to understand for the victims is that we already have all of this past childhood stuff that's keeping us trapped there. Like when we tell we are crying out for help, we're like begging for a lifeline. And so, you know, if someone brings a concern to you um, that they're maybe being taken advantage of, or maybe something's happening, the person who's listening needs to understand that number one, the victim is taking a huge risk and telling because we already feel like it might be our fault. We already feel like if we tell our lives are going to be ruined we might lose, if we're an adult, we might lose our marriage. We might lose our family. We, we might lose our reputation or our jobs, everything. It is, it takes so much courage and boldness to even tell just, just to tell a little bit. So if you're hearing something from someone, just understand the amount of risk that they're taking and understand that they may have things, they probably have things from their past or their history that do not allow them to get out. So it's, it's just these, these are cries for help and they need to be taken seriously. These, this is not gossip. This is not, if someone's, you know, when, when I went to someone for help, it was already really serious and I was already in a very desperate and scared place. So I I know I haven't addressed, you know, how can we stop these abusers in the first place? I don't know if we can, spot a sociopath before they start acting out, but we can take seriously the reports and we can take seriously the red flags. And I would much rather speak out and have somebody's feelings get hurt than have someone lose their life because I, I didn't want to be the bad guy to say something. I hope some of that helps. So back to your book. Your title is fascinating, Emmy. Thank you. You play with the words pray with an E and pray with an A. So can you tell us a bit more about the significance behind this? Yeah, I am. Um, the book, the title is Prayed Upon with an A because I think I'm going to a Christian counselor And this doctor always bragged that he never took his cross necklace off. And our sessions would in the beginning always started out with prayer. And so I think I'm being prayed upon. And then I have the A marked out and an E written in because it isn't until I get out really that I realized I was really being prayed upon with an E, but I love that too. Thank you. And I just love the cover. Thank you. I love it too. That was hand illustrated. He's so talented. I saw that was Ken Wiegand. I have to give him a shout out. And his the cover designer was his sister Amber, but um, her brother was the the one who drew that by hand. I love it. I love it too. 
So, um, Amy, I have to ask, because I know there are people out there who unfortunately relate to this story, but I can, um, but can you explain how you reconciled with the idea of faith after such a horrific injustice? Yeah, I, that's the question of the day, isn't it? (laughs) It's a big one. I spent so much of my life being angry with God for past abuses and for not being there, for not protecting me, for not hearing me, what I thought. I didn't think he was hearing me or listening to me or answering me. And I feel like if I hadn't had that kind of awakening before this happened, where I realized, you know, God was present and I had this breakthrough and I, and I could feel him for the first time and I could hear him and I could feel his love for me. If I hadn't had those experiences, I almost feel like he was preparing me for what was to come because I don't know that I could have survived this incident had that not been the case. But to answer your question, as I was going through it, all of that pain and darkness um, and isolation that I had lived in, I just, I just didn't want to go back there. So I just didn't, I did not turn on God or look towards him as somebody that was causing this or allowing it. I just didn't go there. I would have in the past though, had I not been in the place that I was, but I could feel him and experience him calling out to me, trying to help me, throwing me lifelines. And at first I was just confused because I thought the God, that God gave this therapist to me and that it was a blessing and it was part of my healing journey and it was a God thing. So it was hard to see that it was bad because I thought it was a gift from God and I was thanking him for it in the beginning. But towards the end, I knew that God was clearly warning me, trying to help me get out, trying to help me see it. But at first it was my confusion of like, well, is Satan trying to take away something that is good that God gave me? Or is God trying to tell me to get out and this is bad? And I just was stuck there for a while. Um, And then when I, became a little bit more clear that this is, this is dangerous. And I am in a, in a bad situation. It became more like, well, God, I, I know it's not good, and but I'm going to fix it. If you just give me more time, I'll, I'll fix it because I'll make it. I'll tell the doctor he's hurting me. When he realizes he's hurting me, he's going to stop. He, he would never hurt me on purpose. And so it wasn't God abandoning me. You know, it was me kind of saying, I know God, but just hold on, just give me some time. I'll fix it. You know? And then when I did get out and I was so broken and didn't think I could survive it, the betrayal was just too much um, because I'd never been groomed and made to feel special and loved and connected and then to be thrown away like trash. I'd never been through anything like that before. Um, God just really showed up for me in a really powerful way. And it's, it's in the book and it's just really cool. All the things he did and just loved on me and supported me knowing the, the painful, very painful and very stressful journey I had ahead of me. So I hope I kind of answered the question. I just, it was, it's part that God showed up for me in a big way. And it's part that I was not willing to let this abuse and this abuser take my faith away from me, like I had done in the past and take God away from me and take everything from me. It was just, I just refused to do it. So I, I just, um, does that make sense? Yeah, I understand completely what it is. Yeah, so it's kind of both a decision and 
and the fact that I just felt that God was present. And I never once thought there was a time where I thought, God, did you want me to see this therapist so that I could stop him and turn him in? Or, but I think the much more likely answer is that I just went to him for help. And, um, you know, I don't think it was something that, you know, God wanted me to go there and stop them. I just feel like I went there of my own, you know, needs and will, and, you know, he did the best he could to protect me and get me out. Amy, what message would you like to leave for any listener out there who maybe is going through something similar? Um, Kind of the same things I said, just you are so not alone and it is so not your fault, even though it feels like it is. I thought I was the only one on the planet and, and this is so frequent that it's frightening, both the doctor abuse and the therapist abuse and the pastor clergy abuse, all three are common. I didn't think any of them were common. Um, and again, to, it's very hard to get out on your own and to cut the tie because they, they create this trauma bond. That's just really complex and hard to understand. It's hard to leave. So you, you're going to need to tell someone, even though it's scary and you may not believe the first time and you need to keep trying. You just need to keep telling until somebody believes you. And then you need to, you know, allow them to help you get out. I couldn't get out without help. If you can, that's great. But if you do get out without help, please turn to someone for support because this burden is way too heavy to carry by yourself. It would have crushed me under its weight. And I, I found other victims, you know, that could tell me over and over and over, you're not alone. It's not your fault. You're not alone. It's not your fault. So. Yeah. We have to speak out. We have to tell people. Yeah. Because it's embarrassing and it's shameful and easier or not easier. It's harder to keep it a secret, but there's risk involved in telling. But if you don't take that risk, I feel like the secrecy and the shame and this and, and everything that comes with it will destroy you. And so it's like for your own sanity and your own health, and you owe it to yourself to tell. Amy, how can our listeners find you in your books? I'm sure many, many people want to know more about your story and also about your book. Yeah, um, I have a website and it's www.amynordhuesnord. H U E S as in Sam.com. And about halfway through the page, um, you can sign up to follow my blog. I don't blog often, but um, I plan to get back to it. And I have a, um, a place on my website where you can find all the resources that I have found helpful. I still have more than I'm adding, but as many as I can think of are there. You can email me through my website. I will respond to anyone who reaches out. Um, there's a page where you can buy my paperback book on my website um, and then also the links where you can buy the book paperback or ebook like on Amazon and wherever else books are sold. Thank and I, I'm, I guess I should say I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, although I can't rattle off uh, what those websites look like. <laughs> Amy Nord Hughes, you could find me. That's kind of an unusual last name. Amy, you are so strong. Thank you. You're so sweet. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. And you know, I just, I just want people to have hope because I didn't have any hope. And I thought that this was going to be the end 
you know, of my life. Thought it was too big, too hard, too scary, too much risk, you know, and, and it was hard coming forward. And I did have to go through a lot in coming forward. My marriage had to go through a lot and my family had to suffer a lot, but on the other side, we're so much stronger. My relationships are closer and, and my faith is stronger. And, um, but it's not to say you don't have to go through the valley to get there. And so I guess I just want people to hang on and know they can get through it. Thank you so much, Amy. Please come back. You are already invited for coupling with the RV. <laughs> Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. And remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time.